Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, so today uh, we are going to talk about agricultural protection by the government. Um, so I'm Levi Russell, and I have Levi Breederland on here with me. Um, and we're going to talk about kind of the, the sort of the general concept of uh, agricultural protection at the beginning here, and then I'll talk about the U.S. aspect a little bit and, and um, Levi being Canadian and having some agricultural experience of his own. Um, we'll talk about kind of the Canadian uh, system or at least the parts that he's uh, most familiar with. So just to talk about my background a little bit on this. So I did not grow up on a farm. I grew up um, out in a rural area that we, we used to have a family farm there. It was a very, very old house. Um, uh, until I was about 10, then we moved into town to a small town. But um, I have been for the last, well, from 20, from 2013 to 2018, I was a professor in an agricultural economics department. Well, for a while at Texas A&M and for a while at the University of Georgia. And I spent a lot of time with farmers. So it wasn't like I just was in the classroom and then doing, um, you know, research that nobody reads, even though nobody reads my research. Um, that is also true. But most of my time was spent talking to farmers about markets and like where, where prices were going and all that sort of thing. So I did have um, kind of in a, maybe, I don't know, you call it an advisory or a consulting role as an economist. Um, and so I ran into a lot of policy issues. I taught a policy course at the University of Georgia for two years uh, to undergraduates. So I, I, I have some, uh, you know, fairly advanced knowledge of uh, agricultural policy and how it works. And um, I guess, Levi, do you want to give your sort of background and credentials? And then I'll, I'll kind of come back with a, a little bit of a description of, of kind of what the, the problem we're talking about here. Sure. Um, yeah, so I am totally not qualified to talk about anything in the way you are. Um, but that being said, um, I grew up on a farm, though we never called it a farm. Uh, my dad had uh, 10 acres under glass uh, peppers, which many people will uh, react to that and say, wow, that's a big greenhouse. And he's like, no, that's, that's about the smallest you could, you could have and still be a successful business. Right. We're talking about like a production type greenhouse, not yeah. like the greenhouse you might have, you know, if you just live in, you know, North Dakota or something and you want to have like a little greenhouse for yourself, like the, you're, we're talking about a. Yeah. This is like a commercial, product. a commercial production. Right. Um, I think about 30 staff working full time or more. Wow. Um, that's pretty big, man. I mean, as a business goes 30 people, I mean, that's a yeah. pretty good size business, you know? It's so it's, it, it definitely like it was, it was a business not just a little hobby. Um, when I was a kid, my dad was just the general manager and part owner. And then he eventually bought out the other owners to be like the, the head honcho. And so I was always, you know, involved in, in what was going on. And he was always telling me stuff and whatnot. So not, not exactly like farming as the majority of farming in North America goes, but you know, he's still connected with, especially the, the, the plant growing side of, of farming and and whatnot oh yeah well i'm sure there are unique challenges with a greenhouse and some some challenges he didn't have to deal with as much um as you know a row crop farmer but i mean if you want to grow peppers you know in the tundra <laughs> you've got to have a greenhouse right <laughs> it's not louisiana <laughs> yeah and and yeah the greenhouse gives you 
lots of lots of benefits and you have a bit more control over your climate and but then the downside is you have to you know manually water everything which is mm, right. a lot of work when you have 10 acres of plants and a lot of money yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah so my dad was always he, he he was very into the business side of things like he he was always involved in business related stuff outside of the actual growing process and so he was he was always the kind of person like if, if he noticed his kids who were homeschooled were interested in something, he would say like, Oh, do you want to, do you want to learn, learn more about that? So mm. I would always, you know, listen and it wasn't like farming was never my interest. Like I think my brother inherited that. Um, but yeah, like I've grown up in, in the, the agriculture industry and, and seen kind of at least part of how that works. Um, and then in, in recent years, my, my father-in-law also works in agriculture. He does, uh, he works in the fertilizer sales industry here in Alberta where, um, so he, he's working with, you know, farmers with hundreds to thousands of acres and, and yeah, like real traditional, what you think of when you see a farm, that's, that's what he works with. So yeah, we canola oil and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Lots of, lots of the, uh colder shorter winter crops yep or shorter summer crops yeah like uh, canola is a big one here yeah um, so uh, well so I, I think maybe it would be good to talk a little bit about agriculture the, re- the reason you know I, I think agriculture is interesting is because pretty much everywhere in the developed world and and to an extent in the developing world there there is a lot of um, protection kind of policies for agriculture. So not only is there um, a lot of kind of tariff and quota related stuff that kind of protects the domestic market from competition from outside, and there's tons of you know politics and, and stuff that goes into all of that, but there's also uh, a lot of subsidy programs that you don't have for uh, you know other industries and, and you know explicit subsidy programs for agriculture in a lot of countries. Um, that you don't have in other other industries, and and what I think in general is interesting about this, and I've I've seen some survey work on this issue, uh, you know, because as an economist, you know, most of the economics field would say, you know, this is inefficient. Why are you subsidizing these people? Why can't you just you know get your food from somewhere else? And I think I think what that misses is that people want to have a stable source of food. And, I mean, it's, it's a sort of an innate thing, you know, it's like, uh, okay, yeah, sure. We can get our pencils and, uh, you know, computers and stuff like that from somewhere else. But when it comes down to a basic need, I'm going to get it here if I can. And um, one of the books I want to recommend on this is Economics for Helen by Hilary Belloc. Just read, just read the, the two chapters on international trade. It's really interesting stuff. And, and he gives, um, some reasons why Britain is kind of weird. Maybe we'll talk about it later, but, but the thing is like people want to have a stable source of food. And so they want to get it domestically. And if that means, uh, you know, some quote unquote inefficiencies with tariffs and quotas and subsidies, then so be it. They don't, you know, it's like, yeah, tell me all day long that it's inefficient. I don't care. I want to have my food, you know, stable. Um, And so that's a big reason why, people vote for politicians who will do, you know, agricultural protection. Um, now when it gets into things like ethanol and stuff like that, then it's a little bit, um, less clear, you know, then it's more about sort of a regional, um, regional 
uh, competition and stuff like that, you know, like the Midwest here in the U.S. grows a ton of corn. And so, of course, they have a huge interest in, um, you know, protecting the, you know, that, that ethanol. Uh, ethanol is just an alcohol or is, is an alcohol that's added to your gasoline. Um, and it's made ma mainly from corn in the U.S. Um, and it's um, really hard on lawnmower engines. But, <laughs> but uh, thankfully here in Kansas, I can, I can get uh, non-ethanol fuel. But, but anyway, uh, you know, so you see some of these like niche issues. But I think broader, you know, more broadly speaking, people want to protect their food supply. And the second thing, too, is there, there is also uh, a, a sizable number of people who like to protect agriculture because they see that as a, um, uh, as a way of life that's worth preserving. And so um, maybe we'll get into this later. But you know, 120 years ago, a whole lot more people were agricultural producers, you know, in some commercial fashion, right? So they would they would provide for themselves and then they would sell some of their extra, uh, you know, on the open market. And maybe, I don't know, 40, 50% of the people in North America were farmers. And now it's more like, uh, you know, one and a half percent of people that work kind of directly in agriculture. And obviously there's a lot of other things in support industries like your father-in-law that, um, that uh, sells chemicals or, uh, you know, people that work for equipment manufacturers and stuff like that. There's more of that now, but, um, you know, it's, it's definitely a little bit different. And it seems when people look at, you know, well, you have this whole department, you know, in your government for agriculture. Why? You know, that's sort of silly. It's, it's 1% of the population. Um, but I think those are kind of the reasons why people want agricultural protection, even if it's not efficient. And so maybe I think what will be interesting is kind of talk a little bit about the specifics of how that sort of plays out in these different countries. And maybe, maybe we can get to a discussion a little bit of, okay, does, does this efficiency problem become uh, so big that it, you know, th this particular set of policies is too extreme. You know, it's, it's so inefficient that, you know, we need to dial that back um, and it ends up just being a handout. Um, and so we can talk a little bit about that. So Levi, I know you're, you're, you said your dad uh, operated, you know, a 10 acre greenhouse. Um, so how you, what kind of interactions do you, do you recall with um, him having with sort of, you know, subsidy policies or, or tariffs, stuff like that? Do you remember any uh, discussions he had about that? Or do you know anything about those, those things? From, from what I'm aware, the, the various subsidies and whatnot and they call it supply management here um is more focused on um things like chicken and eggs and milk kind of the the staple the the more staple food sources as opposed to you know peppers where half the year they're being imported from california and mexico anyway so it's not it's not as not so much of like it needs to be a local thing um but we do have there there is like um there is stuff that the government is doing that causes these prices to fluctuate and and change like so for for my dad's greenhouse um the like the the harvest season was basically from april to end of november which um yeah, so there's a, a fair amount of time where you know you're not 
you're not harvesting and that's also your most expensive time because you're buying new plants every year. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see like the way, like if you just go to the grocery store, kind of the way the, the prices change throughout the year, like uh, between, you know, December and April, everything's coming in from the States or from Mexico. Right. And it's all, you know, lower, lower quality and whatnot because it's been trucked up here. Um, but then the moment, the moment the local greenhouses come on the market, the prices all jump around and you have, you know, competing products that are, you know, cheap and old versus expensive and new. And then the, the recent changes with carbon taxes here have, have made that very interesting as well, because now your, your cost of production in Canada is, you know, another notch higher. But as when it comes to, when it comes to subsidies, it's, yeah, it's more of the, the farming kind of the, the less, the less advanced, less technical type of like when it's like dairy production and whatnot, where we have, we have different things that the, the government does to uh, like almost, almost like insurance, like the, the government is setting up systems where if your production fails for some reason, or you have, you know, uh, uh, an issue with your crop that there's, there's funding for you so that the farmers are at least staying afloat and not, not going out of business and that kind of thing, which, you know, it makes sense. Um, yeah. And so that, that's kind of an interesting one, I think, because that that's, I would say very fairly general that most countries ha- <clears throat> have some kind of a program like that. And, you know, it's, it, it's always, it's always funny how it's billed, right? It's billed as, well, we're, we're making sure farmers stay in business, but you know, the reality is if the farmers were just a lot bigger, right, then they could sort of self-insure, right? I mean, a, a very large operation wouldn't have to worry about, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, hail in one part of the, you know, one part of their production and then maybe a tornado yeah. over here and a frost here, you know, if their, if their land was big enough, then they wouldn't have to worry about that stuff because they would just, they would have enough, you know, enough production in other good places where, you know, the revenue would even out. I mean, that's pretty much what the government's banking on by providing that insurance that way. Yeah. Um, there's one, one interesting thing here in Alberta is there's, there's these uh, groups of people um, they're called Hutterites and they're, they're a, a branch of the Anabaptist tradition, similar in many ways to the Amish, except they aren't, as anti-technology mm-hmm. um and so they 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 have what they call colonies here and there scattered around town or around the the province and uh the way they're set up is uh basically every everybody is an employee and they all get provided housing and they all they all live like in their own homes on the property but the property is owned by the company and then the oh, yeah. the company owns you know a couple thousand acres so they have a very they have a very diverse set of crops and they're not you know just doing pigs or something they're doing you know pigs and cows and and dairy and chicken and then all the farming as well and they're producing their own feed for all the animals and in many ways they're kind of like the the 
the perfect example of an efficient farm because they, they do everything and their staff is all housed on site and can work, you know, all hours of the night. Like when it's harvest season, they're working 24 seven. Yeah. Because they yeah. have, they have the people to do it. And it seems like they've got like, that's, that seems like it might be the, the, the way to go is like kind of get bigger and get more efficient. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, maybe the thing that holds them back a little bit on efficiency is the fact that they're not specialized in a relatively narrow right you know, type of production. I mean, I think that that could be something where they would quote unquote improve, but of course, from their standpoint, that wouldn't be an improvement, right? Because then they would have to go, you know, maybe they would produce tons of grain, but then they'd have to go buy their meat. Well, they yeah, don't exactly, that, you know, yeah, they keep as much in-house as possible, basically. Right. So I, I think what's interesting about Canada is, is it's notorious dairy policy. <laughs> and I've, I've heard that like people in like say British Columbia will actually drive to Washington state and like buy milk and then hide it in their car and basically traffic it back to Canada because it's so much cheaper in the U S you know, so a gallon of milk here and y'all use liters. So whatever. Actually we sell our milk in gallons too. We're really? Weird. Okay. Cause I'm looking at a, 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 a an article that's talking about the price in liters, but that's good. You <laughs> live in Alberta. Maybe they're, they're using the, I think in, in Eastern Canada, they sell their milk in one liter bags. It's very dumb. That's weird. Here, bag. here we have, we have gallons, like the gallon jugs. They look the same. They right. say 3.78 liters or whatever mm-hmm. it is, but they are a gallon jug. Right. So, so here, you know, milk, I, I don't know, two fifty a gallon, something like that. And there it's probably what, $4 probably for a gallon of milk i'm guessing yeah something something like that i'm, I'm looking to see if i've got a, a note here of that but yeah, yeah like, neither so, of us shop for our houses so <laughs> but but the thing um, the thing about canada as, so, is as a kid like our our farm was uh let's see like four kilometers from the the u.s canada border okay close enough that we could see fourth of july fireworks on the other side <laughs> right um and there was a dairy farm the same distance uh, the other direction from that had that had a uh, like a, a farm store and so especially when I was younger we would we would drive across and yeah we we'd buy our our milk and our cheese and I think we bought eggs and we but yeah like especially the the dairy products were cheaper mm-hmm. as well as gas. So we, we would buy stuff and then, yeah, truck it back. And there's, there was limits of like how much you could bring in without having to pay extra duty. Yeah, so because they didn't want you actually trafficking the stuff. Yeah. yeah. My mom would say like, oh, you know, you and your brother and sister should come along because then I have four people worth of, of import. Right. Uh, rather than just one. So we, we would do that. And it, yeah, it kind of feels so, like. So but. what I think is interesting about this is like, so it, it doesn't make sense that there would just be this magical difference in the price of milk, you know, uh, across this border. Um, but, but the reason for it is because in Canada, they are very restrictive about the number of people who can produce milk there. And yeah. They don't have like massive, uh, you know, sort of trade controls and stuff like that, um, that raise the prices there. And so I think I looked this up quite a while ago when I was, um, looking at dairy stuff in in Georgia when I was there and in Canada, you have to pay like a, you have to pay for a license and it's like $300,000 just to become a dairy operator. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, and so they get to decide if you're a dairy operator and all this stuff. And yeah. So, so they're, they're artificially creating a, a scarcity in that way. Like, they're, yeah, they're saying exactly. like there's, there's a limit. I think it's, um, Oh, I wrote it down somewhere. It's something like 80 million hectoliters per year is the max of, of milk that can be produced. So yeah, even if you are a dairy farmer, you have a, a maximum production level too. Yeah. Which, and see, I think this is an interesting juxtaposition here. You know, in Canada, there's this, there's a, a sort of a bright line between some of these, you know, industries within the agriculture sector are treated on the crop side you know, maybe reasonable stuff, right? Well, we want to have enough canola and enough wheat uh, produced here to, you know, feed our population and, uh, you know, to, to trade with other, um, another country, other countries and stuff like that to get the things we want. Um, and so it makes sense, you know, mm -hmm. like you were saying before to, you know, support farmers and keep them in business. But then on the, on the dairy side, you know, it's, it's so extreme. It's so intense that it's like, now you're harming people, right? So like, yeah. you, you could, you could have a thriving, healthy dairy industry with only a set of policies that sort of supported those dairy farmers. Um, and not something that restricted entry into the industry and restricted how much they could produce and all of this nonsense. Um, and I would say in the U S we used to have a lot more of that kind of thing, especially in, like fruits um, and berries and stuff like that um, and nuts. But a lot of that has kind of gone um, away and it's a lot more market oriented here. You know, and obviously in the U S and this is something Hillary Belloc talks about in that book, economics for Helen, you know, the U S and this is, you know, this book was written a hundred years ago, um, but he's talking about how, you know, the, the United States could, you know, not trade with anyone and, and, and it, and it could produce everything that it needed within its own borders. Cause it's such a, you know, we, we have such a massive country and I, I think Canada would be similar. I mean, unless you wanted pineapples or something, right. <laughs> um, you know, not that we could produce pineapples here, I don't think, but, um, but you know, but the UK, I mean, good grief. They, they produce at the figures in his book a hundred years ago was something like 20% of the beef that they eat. They oh, wow. there, you know, so, you know, the, what he says in the book is they're sort of forced to trade with other countries. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's kind of a, an interesting way to think about it that, you know, trade policy and, and, and subsidy policies and stuff like this can be dependent on the country that you're in. Yeah. And um, here in Canada, um, it was in the, near the end of the 1800s, the government put into place a, a subsidy for grain transportation. Oh, really? Um, specifically, so it was basically the government would subsidize the cost of shipping grain to encourage the farmers in the prairie provinces to send their products oh. back to the east I rather see. than to sell it to the neighbors to the south. And so we had that, that was in place until 1995. Wow. And then in 1995, they repealed that and suddenly it became more profitable to sell to Americans. I see. And that, that would, you know, it's interesting. Like if you take into every, if you take everything into account, you're, you're reducing the amount of government revenue because of, you know, less, less sales in the country means less taxes being collected and all that. So right. it was interesting. And, and the, the justification for that was that, Canada being it like it, we're such a big country east to west mm -hmm. where our population kind of spread out in this long thin line that they wanted to 
you know, encourage people to send stuff horizontally across the map rather than, <laughs> rather than to ship it to the South. Cause there's, right. there's nothing like Edmonton is, it, it doesn't look like Northern Canada on the map, but uh, 97% of Canadians live South of Edmonton. So like right. there's, there's nothing north of here. So you're, you're really saying, well, yeah, I mean, Northern Canada is like, you know, you're dead in 10 minutes if you're outside for more than, you know, whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Yukon. Well, so yeah. So yeah, we've got like this history of, of some really strong subsidies. And that was part of, part of the push to get people to, to move out to the prairies was they had homestead land where you could get 160 acres for free and then uh knowing that you had some guaranteed price on your production right it was it was good encouragement to get people to move out here yeah so i i, I mean i think there's a lot there but i think this this fits into um some of what's in uh those international trade chapters in um economics for helen and and what i what i like about it is there's, there's a great example that's probably going to be tough to convey over audio, but, but it's really neat to go through the example and he has a little chart uh, to help you. But basically um, it, it's kind of an example, like you were saying with that, that uh, subsidy for wheat transportation. So could, could we say, right, that in, in a, in a, in a global sense that it was less efficient to subsidize those farmers in Canada to ship their grain East to, you know, Toronto and, and places like that, um, then to just trade it with the U S and then, you know, maybe the, the prices of those, of that food would come up in Toronto, but you know, maybe that means that, um, you know, people in Toronto pay a little bit more for their food, but then they get other stuff from the U S cheaper, right? Because there's more trade. Um, and it's like, okay, sure. But, but the question is, do you want the food to be more expensive in Toronto? Like that specific question needs answered, right? Yeah. And so maybe you get, I mean, I don't know what the heck Canada imports from the U S uh, I don't know, lumber. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, you know, all oh, the lumber's a little bit cheaper, but you know, the food's more expensive and it's like, sorry, man, like, you know, I'd rather have the houses be, you know, a tiny fraction more expensive than it'd be harder for people to buy bread, you know? Um, yeah and so food is such a high priority in you know like sure once you've got a place to rest your head the next thing you're thinking about is what's for supper so right and and maybe lumber being more expensive would would make it more expensive to get a house but you know there's there's other ways of um you know of dealing with that issue than uh you know for instance you can you can use some other kind of building material that you produce in Canada to build a house, <laughs> but you can't substitute, you know, food for not food. So, um, um, you know. so according to this random article that I have no idea if it's accurate or not, um, Canada is the United States's main supplier of wood actually. Oh, okay. So it's the other way around. <laughs> so it's the other way around. Apparently the, the largest, the largest U S export to Canada is car related. So either ah, full, full sense. size cars or parts and whatnot. So, yeah, and I would I would say probably, yeah, I would probably cars because we don't even we don't even make cars here. We we assemble them. We buy sub assemblies <laughs> yeah. from Central and South America, and then and then assemble them here. So, but that makes sense, you know. Yeah. So okay, so cars are a little more expensive, but you know that's transportation. That's a lot less important for you than um, than food is, right? So, um. Well, so I, I think, I think that's a kind of a good framework for understanding this, that, that, you know, there's, there certainly are, um, 
things that go way too far, but there's also some sensibility to a lot of this. And so one of the examples I wanted to talk about here in the U S you know, in the U S is kind of unique, right? But we have um, pretty much, you know, any kind of agriculture you can imagine it happens here in the U S somewhere, uh, you know, so fruits and vegetables in California and the Southeast, um, you know, tons and tons of, of uh, meat production, uh, quite a bit of dairy production, you know, I mean, obviously, I mean, here in the state of Kansas, I, where I live, I think we have like six to seven million head of cattle here. Um, and we're the second or third state. I think it's Texas, Nebraska, Kansas. So, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's just a lot of production that goes on here. And, and so it was always interesting to talk to people because, you know, they would, they would be confused about some of the international trade stuff. You know, these farmers would be like, well, why, you know, why are we, why are we shipping meat to other countries? You know, like, don't we want our meat here to be cheaper? And it's like, okay, man, like we're, we're shipping stuff. We don't want to eat. You know, do you, <laughs> eat, do you eat a lot of liver and cow brains and stuff like that? No, you don't. But people in other countries will take it. And so we ship it to them and then we, you know, bring other stuff here. So, um, you know, the U S is kind of a, a, an interesting case study, I think, um, because you get these, uh, really interesting little, sort of um, industry relationships. And so I'm, I'm actually working on a paper right now um, talking about peanuts yeah. and how the peanut industry in the U.S. works. Um, and so about 20 years ago, some programs ended that were, uh, that, that were a lot like your dairy policy. So uh, in, in the tobacco and peanut industries, so two, two industries that are kind of uh, – you know, held mostly in the South, um, the Southern U.S., the Southeast, especially. Those two products were, um, you were guaranteed a higher price if you, if you produced a, a quota, right? So we had a quota of production, not a quota of trade, uh, you oh, know, okay. trade, but a, a production quota. And if you produced, uh, you know, if you had an agreement where you were under the quota, then you got a much higher price than people who just grew peanuts for fun or, you know, oh, I see. without the quota. Right. And so th there was this, you know, weird system, right. Where basically you kind of just, you had to be a quota producer and they got rid of that. But what they did for, for peanuts and tobacco was they gave them these sort of transitional payments that would continue for a few more years to kind of, you know, let them wind their business down or whatever. Right. Um, cause you could see that, you know, obviously if, if, if the quota is effective, then, you know, a lot more people would want to grow tobacco than they previously did. Right. Um, if you take away the quota system. So, oh, yeah. so on the, on the, on the peanut side, it was kind of interesting where these transitional payments kind of stuck around. And so we're 20 years after this program ended and peanut producers still get like super preferential treatment on a whole range of these different programs. And so like, for instance, there's a, <clears throat> there's a payment limit. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a limit on your income that you can, that, that, you know, once you get above a certain income level for your farm, you can't get any more payments above that income level. Right? So here's the funny thing. There's, there's that general limit. And then there's also, there's another equivalent limit for just peanut payments. <laughs> so if you're a peanut farmer in the South, 
you can basically get twice as much in terms of payments than, you know, any farmer anywhere else in the country. Wow. Or even than your neighbors if they don't grow peanuts. And so to me, it's just insane, you know, how like this tiny little industry has been able to get this weird favor. And, you know, of course, you know, the standard public choice thing is, you know, the benefits from that policy are concentrated in a small group of people. And so they have a massive incentive to maintain that program, even though everyone else would be better off if we got rid of it. But the problem is, you know, I mean, even if you ate a lot of peanuts, right? How, how much is it going to save you if you, if you cut off this peanut program, right? How much is that going to save you on your taxes? I mean, not much, right? So you have, you as, a, as an individual citizen who's just paying taxes have almost no incentive whatsoever because the cost of the program is so widely dispersed. Oh yeah. And so it, I think it, it, it goes from a political angle, it goes from being something that makes sense that, you know, we want to preserve agriculture and preserve our capacity to produce our food, you know, like maybe crop insurance or some of these payment programs and stuff like that in general to something that's just obviously corporate welfare, right? It's just <laughs> obviously a handout, um, you know, to a politically powerful small group of people. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the biggest things I've been pushing, uh, you know, over the last five years or so is this idea of a PR problem. And I think agriculture, at least in the U.S., I don't know, I mean, good grief. I mean, Canada with that dairy thing, man, those, those guys have to be under a ton of pressure yeah, get rid of that because I mean, that is, you know, because once the stuff goes public, right. And once people get enraged about it, you know, and here in the U S every five years, they change the, the agricultural policy, right. They have to pass a new, what we call a farm bill. So, you know, every five years, this becomes a relevant political issue. Um, and all the other time it's not, but then whenever people are arguing about it, it's like it gets worse and worse and they have to push the programs more and more market oriented and, and less and less of guarantee and, and stuff like this. Um, because I think they have a PR problem, you know, they, because people don't see this as preserving a way of life and preserving our capacity to produce our food. It's just a handout. Yeah. Especially when it's the things like the, the peanut thing, that's kind of a holdout from a previous system. And it's just, right. it's just like, it's, it feels like it's there to be abused almost. Yeah. And I mean, and we have even weirder stuff. Like for instance, we have these things called marketing orders where a, basically a, you know, and th this happens especially with stuff like, you know, nuts and stuff like that in, in California. So there will be, you know, the, the California almond board. And so, you know, around harvest time, the California almond board will sort of estimate how much production there was. And then they will tell all of the farmers, okay, you have to destroy this percentage of your crop so we can keep the prices up. Wow. And literally they'll either, they'll either just give it away for free into like the, the, the livestock feed system, right? So they'll keep it out of the food supply so that the oh, yeah. grade almonds are, you know, the price stays high or they'll just dump it in the ocean. That's crazy. Um, and I don't know if they still do that, but definitely within the last two decades, that has been a thing. Um, and it, it's just such an odd um, you know, it just takes it too far. And, and I think people, if people knew more about the difference I, that I think you can draw this line between, 
you know, legitimate support policies and whether they're trade related policies, you know, uh, like for instance, here in the U S we've had a sugar tariff for, uh, I mean, I, I don't even know how long. Um, and it, it even props up, you know, very inefficient sugar production from sugar beets in places like Minnesota. You know, most sugar comes from cane, right? Yeah. Sugar cane that's grown where it's really hot. Um, and so we have some sugar cane production here in like Florida and Southern Texas um, and maybe in California. But um, otherwise we would have to import a lot of sugar, right? A lot more than we do, but we have a sugar tariff. And so everybody in the U S pays more for sugar. And you know, we get, <laughs> we get a lot of our sugar from high fructose corn syrup, right? Um, a lot of our sweetener anyway. Oh yeah. Uh, but it's, it's just one of these things where, okay, maybe that sugar tariff makes sense. Okay. Yes. In a very limited sort of, you know, libertarian sense, it doesn't make sense because it's just a restriction on the trade between, you know, people in two locations, but you know, maybe that's okay. If, you know, it preserves our ability to produce, you know, sugar in Minnesota. So we always make sure we have some sugar <laughs> that wouldn't otherwise be profitable. Um, and so, like I said, I think, I think you can kind of draw this distinction and I think what people need, what people need is they need a little bit more information about what types of products have these different kinds of programs. And so that's why I'm writing this paper on, on peanuts. Another case I think that's interesting is that, you know, people are becoming more and more aware of sort of, you know, where their food comes from and what their food is like. And, um, you know, people talk about chemicals and, and, and genetically modified stuff. Um, and another project I'm going to be working on here soon is we're going to be looking at regulations that actually hamper um, people from having sort of smaller, more, um, more local kinds of production. Because, you know, this is another way to deal with risk, right? Is to just have, um, you know, to not have such a, a large centralized system, right? So, um, you know, for example, cattle in the U S is a very interesting case of this. So you have, um, the, the, the mama cows are kind of dispersed around the country. And then when their calves grow to a certain weight, they pretty much all get sent to a very small area in the U S Nebraska, Kansas, and Northern Texas. And that's where they are fed in feedlots. And then they're sent to slaughterhouses around that area. And then they go uh, to grocery stores all over the country. And so because they have that centralizing step, right, where everything has to come to the middle of the country, you know, it, it's, it, um, it, it creates potential problems, right? So, I mean, if, if something happens to one of these large facilities, you know, the price of meat might come up. But if you have local production, at least you know that you're going to be able to have that product there. And sure, maybe oh, it's yeah. more expensive all the time, but, you know, maybe you're getting higher quality. Maybe you have a little bit more. And, and this is something I've talked about a lot on this podcast is, you know, that commerce builds community. And so maybe it's a good thing for you to have that commerce for your food a little bit more locally. Um, but, but there are all kinds of regulations that get in the way of this, obviously, right? So um, we go back to um, the jungle, uh, this book that was written about a hundred years ago, kind of, it, it was a fictional book, but it, it really caused a stir because people thought that, you know, oh, there's no meat inspection and, and nobody knows, you know, what's actually going on in these, these slaughterhouses and stuff. Um, and that wasn't the case, but it, it, push a surge of regulation. And now, you know, it's very hard to have a, a relatively small, you know, slaughter facility because 
you know, regulation creates economies of scale, right? And so then you need a bigger operation to justify, you know, to, to, to be able to turn a profit um, just from complying with these regulations. Uh, there's a great book uh, called Everything I Want to Do is Illegal by, <laughs> by Joel Salatin. Um, and he's a, he's a farmer in Virginia who, who very much loves the, the sort of um, kind of produce everything on your farm and don't specialize perspective. Okay. Um, and this book is just full of examples of ways that the government was basically getting in the way of him, you know, producing local food and, and even, even building, he couldn't even build his own house because Virginia's codes were, uh, you know, he couldn't, oh, he couldn't wow. build a small dwelling on his own property, uh, with his own wood. So, uh, or at least he couldn't do it very, very effectively. So, um, I, I'm going to link to that too, but in, in the show notes, cause I, I just love that book. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. But, um, I, I think the, in general, the regulatory and, and, um, policy aspects of agriculture are interesting in that. I think there's, I, I think too often we talk about it as this one thing, right? Agricultural protection or agricultural regulation. And the problem is we really need to start differentiating between programs and I think the more we're able to kind of inject sort of, um, you know, localist or, um, you know, kind of nationalist perspective. I know those are kind of two separate things, but I guess on the regulation side, more localist and, and in terms of, you know, understanding the effects and the efficiency of policy, more of a nationalist perspective, mm, yeah. um, then I think, I think that will actually help people understand why we have these things and, and not be so um, concerned about these quote unquote efficiency problems, um, you know, in terms of international trade. Yeah. It'd, it'd be good to like for someone who is against say they're against the idea of any government subsidy to at least understand that there's a difference between, you know, limiting how much milk you're allowed to produce versus um, like an insurance program, right? Like there's, there's very different, different things there, different, different benefits and different, uh, different downsides to each. Right. And, 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 and the, the fact that a dollar is not a dollar, right? Sometimes it makes sense for, you know, one thing to be a little bit less efficient or to be a little bit more expensive if it's in service to a, a more important cause. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I, if, I think that's, that's something that people need to keep in mind too. If, if governments and other organizations that are connected to all that also do a good job of kind of showing the, showing the trail that the money's following and you can see like, okay, there's a, there's a benefit to me not being able to sell my stuff to the States, for example, right. because in the end that money does come back to me in the form of X, Y, Z or Z for you Americans. <laughs> um, if if it's if they make it very easy to see the the benefits and the you know the peace of mind and the stability that you can get from a program that's that's a good way to to encourage people to not be against it well and what also plays into that is that you know the the farmers in Alberta need to have some kind of um you know sort of mutual fellow feeling to use an adam smith term and really trigger libertarians um, they need to have some mutual fellow feeling with the people in Toronto and, um, you know, God forbid Quebec. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, be, 
as Canadians, right? So then, then, then it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I have to ship my stuff over to Toronto, but I care about people in Toronto because they are my countrymen. You know, they are, they are closer to me than, uh, you know, somebody in Montana or, you know, wherever. Um, And I, I, I think that there's, until, until maybe 20 years ago, this was perfectly acceptable to talk about, you know, now all of a sudden, um, you're a, you're a a murdering Nazi. If you think that, you know, being Canadian is a good thing (laughs) or something like that. And that's not just Canada. I'm not picking on Canada. Um, you know, I pick on Canada all the time, but in this case, I'm not picking on Canada. I'm saying, you know, the U S is the same way. Yeah. The Uh, national pride and that kind of thing is definitely, and it has nothing to do with Hitler, right? It has nothing to do with slavery. It's just, <laughs> you know, people in my country matter more to me than people outside my country, just like people in my town or people in my family. I mean, there, there's different levels here, but the, the, the point is it's, it's the same kind of thing, right? And, and commerce is a piece of our relationships. Right. So I think that's probably a good place to stop. And, um, you know, I, we'd love to have any questions or requests for, more on this type of thing. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, the best way to contact us is, is via Twitter. Um, the, the, the trad dads website, um, or you can email me. It's T R A D trad economist at gmail.com. Um, love to have suggestions through there as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the trad dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.